You're listening to the She's Unshakable podcast. I'm your host, Fleur Lonsdale, and if you're looking to create incredible courage, resilience, and unshakable belief in yourself, then this podcast is for you. Each episode, I'll be interviewing incredible adventurers, athletes, and entrepreneurs to dig deep into the strategies and tools they use to create unwavering courage and belief so that you can learn how to never give up on your goals and achieve the life of your dreams. Hey, hey guys, and welcome to this week's episode of the She's Unshakable podcast, where I get to talk to Sophia Schwartz. Now, Sophia's journey takes us through being a childhood ski phenomenon, um, living up and growing up in Colorado, being a mogul skier and working her way up to being part of the USA ski team, which she obviously loved, but also brought some challenges, some injuries. And we talk about all of the things that went on throughout that time, what's moved her into the big backcountry alpine skiing now where she is a full-on badass chick doing backflips everywhere and if you haven't checked her out make sure that you check her out on instagram and we talk about the beliefs in our heads the courage and the difference between confidence and courage as well that we need to have in order to get to our goals and what it is that we want to achieve so enjoy the episode and make sure to stick around till the end Welcome, Sophia. I'm so happy to have you on the Unshakable, the She's Unshakable podcast. Um, and can't wait for our listeners to hear your story, your background, and all of the amazing stuff that you've done in your life because you're not only your photos inspiring, but everything that you're up to is super cool. And I know that we don't just get anywhere we want to with a little bit of effort. So I'm really excited for our listeners to hear from you and for you to be here with us. Amazing. Thanks so much, Bloomer. I'm really excited to be here as well. Awesome. So before we get to know you a little better, I would love to know if you have a morning routine, what is your morning routine? Yeah, my morning routine is kind of always dependent on what I'm doing for the day. I think that if I'm going on a big skiing mountaineering mission, it's mostly just about like getting up and getting moving. There's a lot of times I leave my house at 5 a.m. to make sure I have enough daylight to do my adventure and then I'm just trying to you know pound down some food and not forget (laughs) anything important as I rush out the door Um, but if I have time is my favorite I'm definitely a morning person and the highlight of my morning um, is drinking my coffee and sitting out on my back porch and just taking 10 to 15 minutes to disconnect not be on my phone and kind of just look around my neighborhood um, and reconnect my favorite thing I have is a milk frother. It's very embarrassing because <laughs> I don't see myself as like bougie or high maintenance. That's my most loved possession, I think. Um, but yeah, it's this amazing milk frother. So I've become uh, a milk frothing snob in the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> is it funny that we get these little things that we just love and become part of our sort of routine? Like we're, we love um, a little morning coffee. And I know what you mean when like, because obviously we're traveling at the moment and coming from New Zealand and Australia where the coffee is amazing and you can get a good one anyway, (laughs) you sort of come here and we've had to sort of rejiggle, you know, where we're going to get it or whether we make it ourselves and how we make it. And we've ended up making this little like keto coffee that we blend in the blender to make it throffy now (laughs) rather than sort of going out and seeing if you can find it. A, you know a coffee from an average like cafe or something but it's, it's so funny how we get our little our little sort of uh, habits I guess you can call them it's so funny I know it's embarrassing I question if I should bring my milk milk frother with me when I travel <laughs> like, Sophia no I know it's small I know it's convenient but leave it you can handle this <laughs> it'll make coming home better <laughs> true 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 nothing wrong with having your little things though nothing wrong with that at all um, cool, Han. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your story, your background, and how you got to where you are now? Yeah. Um, so skiing has always been the love of my life and kind of my core identifier. I grew up in Colorado and started skiing at the age of two, so I don't wow. really even have memory 
before skiing. <laughs> it has always just been this really defining part of my life. And, you know, I think when we like think of our self-identifiers as being like a woman or white or what our social economic status is, like skiing to me is just one of those. And probably like the thing I would list first as my like identifiers. Mm. And I always loved to jump and be in the air. So I luckily stumbled into a mobile skiing program at the age of six and just loved it and knew that I wanted to try to progress and be the best that I could. And luckily for me, some of my coaches and mentors had had ski careers on the U.S. ski team. So it became kind of a clear pathway to what I wanted to do. Um, so for much of my life, I was a mobile skier and ended up making the U.S. ski team at 23, which is significantly older than kind of most athletes do. Um, I had struggled with some injuries, questioned if I should keep skiing, and yeah, kind of powered through that. So mogul skiing was my main jam. And in the last three years, I have transitioned away from mogul skiing into backcountry skiing and ski touring. So rather than taking the chairlift up, getting to hike up the mountains and kind of engage with nature a little bit more than just smashing down a mogul course um, on the resort every day. <laughs> yeah, it's quite different, hey, the big mountain skiing and just being up there rather than... But, I mean, no wonder you've got injuries. Mogul skiing is hardcore. Like, if if those of you who are listening and you don't know what mogul skiing is, if you just go to YouTube and check out mogul skiing and the, the particular one where you have the jumps at the end so that you can sort of understand what Sophia's doing or has done and the extremes of it, because it's gnarly. It's full-on gnarly. Like, I don't even understand how people's legs move like that, to be honest. Yeah, it's definitely a lot on the body for sure. And we'll do a lot of like strength training and preventative injury work um, off snow as well. But yeah, it's definitely not only about how hard you train, but a lot about how you recover and take care of yourself, which I think is kind of mm -hmm. a frame shift I had to learn through getting injured. Um, I think I've always been kind of a try hard kid. My parents have a story of me wanting to learn how to snap my fingers at six. And I sat outside on our front steps for like five hours straight until I could snap. And then once I could do it, I like went about the rest of my day. But I've always had a bit of an obsessive personality. <laughs> and I think in mogul skiing, once I got hurt, having to learn that just working harder was not always the best way to get better. It was really tough. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a It's a big lesson to learn, especially when you're, when you're in that sort of zone, I guess, from such a young age, because starting, I mean, were you competing at the age of six? I was, yes. Um, in Colorado, they have kind of like little kid competitions yeah. where they make an easier mogul course for you to get down. Um, but I loved being in the start gate. I loved kind of like that pressure of feeling um, like you had to ski your best run. And to me, it was very like self-motivated. My parents weren't pushing me towards competition, but it was a cool way to get to travel to a new resort or see a different type of course. So I really like enjoyed it. Yeah, I can imagine. Although I, I don't think everyone has got the same, the same sort of drive, but it's that feeling that you get, because I did a little bit of ski racing um, when I was at university for the, for the army. And that feeling of just being at the top of the gate and just waiting for the noise and you're like what? <laughs> scary but adrenaline pumping like you just don't get that much I don't know I, I've never had the same adrenaline pump that I've had back then um which is awesome so were your parents sort of like big skiers did they sort of get you into it at, at like two when you started my parents love the mountains for sure um especially my mom was um a competitive runner and a mountaineer um, but neither of them were kind of alpine skiers. My mom um, was a cross-country competitor, Nordic competitor, but my parents kind of put us on the slopes because it's just what you do in the community of Colorado, and it eventually serves as a really good babysitter. <laughs> um, Smart. It's kind of just like the kid's playground in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. And I 
think that it's a great way to like have family time and spend time together but it was never like an intentional choice of trying to like develop my sister and I as elite skiers yeah for sure um yeah that makes sense I guess good good babysitting opportunity (laughs) and so and I think yeah that to me I appreciate that about skiing is that it holds this like duality in my life of my competitive drive growth but then also like play relaxation and like connection with friends yeah and family I guess too right yeah and family as well. nice um so tell us a little bit about the challenges that you face along the journey to essentially becoming a professional athlete um to being on the ski team and yeah what was what was probably your biggest challenge going through that time I think my biggest challenge was getting injured. As a young gun, I just like love skiing so much that I saw a really quick progression. Um, I was the kind of kid who would skip the lunch break and, you know, get a bag of French fries and eat them on the chairlift because I didn't (laughs) understand why anyone would want to take an hour break in the middle of the day when you could just keep skiing. And so I think through that, like, just kind of, like, love of skiing, I progressed a lot. Um, I've always been willing to kind of be a risk taker and take some crashes. And so at the age of 16, I was skiing high level uh, with a kind of path to the U.S. ski team. Um, Pretty visible. I had just qualified for the development team when I blew my left knee playing field hockey. And I've always been a multi-sport athlete, and that's really important to me. But it was very painful that a month before ski season to Mm -hmm. have this kind of devastating injury. And I was always kind of like fit and athletic. And my assumption going into this injury was that I would be like everyone else and, you know, kind of come out of this injury stronger and better for it. Um, But immediately that turned out not to be the case. And I had a really hard recovery in which I didn't heal well. I struggled a lot with swelling. I couldn't get the range of motion back in my knee. And I went through this kind of transformation of, you know, feeling really confident about my body and the way it would grow and adapt as I asked it to, to sort of this panic of no matter what I'm doing in these exercises, I'm not getting better. And having to deal with that like insecurity really for the first time and not having coping strategies available because exercise and skiing was my coping strategy. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. That must've been tough. Hey. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, I don't think I ever really figured it out as a 16 year old. Um, I went through that year just really feeling pretty darn miserable. Um, and it wasn't until I got back on snow the next season um, I felt better and unfortunately during that next season I sustained another injury I landed a jump and felt a pop in my knee and turns out I tore a meniscus and so back again onto the the operating table and into recovery mode Um, I kind of got an opportunity to like try again Sorry, I was just going to say that's not a short recovery either, is it? No. Um, and again, kind of, it's supposed to be six to eight weeks, and it took me longer. It had a lot of swelling and pain um, and sort of, you know, recognizing that uh, in some ways I'm not the best healer. <laughs> <laughs> and that that's okay. That It takes time, and I think especially being younger, your time frame is so condensed and so short um, that you want to get back out right away and realizing in the scheme of things that like two months is not your whole life. (laughs) (laughs) When you're that age, for sure, time goes super slow, doesn't it? Definitely. Um, And yeah, so kind of came back from that injury, had a really great kind of off-season preparing and training and come December I got back on the mobile course and ended up winning this huge competition which was really exciting Um, only followed by a month later taking another crash 
and actually tearing the ACL in my other leg. Oh my goodness. And, um, yeah, having three knee surgeries in three years was pretty like terrifying because again, back to the kind of passion for skiing, of course I wanted to make the U.S. ski team and have this successful career, but I also want to be a lifelong skier. For sure. And there was a moment of panic of sort of wondering, like, would I even be able to ski as a 40-year-old, you know, 50-year-old? Mm-hmm. What kind of, like, risk was I taking with my body? Yeah, it's it's a pretty, I mean, knees are such a vital part of of our bodies, not just for skiing, but, you know, just for walking and in general and, and running too. So, but yeah, especially for skiing, I mean, you hear about it all the time. So many ACL injuries, just one after the other. Like when, when I lived in Chamonix, I think I had 10 friends that did their ACL in one season. And I was just like, what are you guys doing? Wow. It was crazy. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, how did you work how did you sort of get through that? Like, what was your... Because obviously you must have learnt, especially after it happening three times, what would have been, you know, a way for you to understand the process or maybe even learn to enjoy the process a little bit more. I don't know. Let let me know. Like, what what did you... What did you find was the, the best way to sort of work through that time? Yeah, I found that... One, from having such a miserable recovery the first time, I learned that even, like, when things aren't going well, like, eventually you do come out the other side and the body heals. And unfortunately, I would say my knees are not 100%, but they are, like, functioning and, like, capable. So I think trusting the process when things aren't going well um, and also, like, adapting. Like, I switched physical therapists that I was going to, you know, and found a new physio that seemed to have a better knowledge of my body and, you know, not blaming myself and looking for, like, different options. Because I think in injuries um, and recovery, there's sort of this idea of back to, like, if you just work harder, things will work out. And I think learning to embrace that failure and dig into why you were failing rather than just sort of like putting your head down and assuming that like working harder will fix the failure and being able to like talk about it openly rather than having to just like put on a smile and pretend that everything's okay. Um, The other thing I did is coming back from my third knee surgery, I took a full year off of competing um, and coached because I knew I wanted to be on snow and I knew I wanted to be around my friends and my community but I sort of gave myself time away from like the pressure of competing and feeling like I had to be at a hundred percent to allow myself just to heal more and, you know, recognizing, okay, I'm a slower healer. I need more time. That six month timeline isn't realistic for me. That nine month timeline isn't realistic for me, but at a year out now sort of I'm aligning better with how I want my body to feel and having those like realistic expectations, the second round of ACL surgery, I think set me up better to like recognize that it was going to be hard. Um, Mm -hmm. And I have kind of like a funny backwards way of thinking (laughs) about like confidence than like most people do. Um, So a lot of times I'll tell myself that things are going to be way, way harder than they're going to be. And I sort of like, prepare for this like intense struggle and this intense challenge and then when they're less hard than I expect um I'm more like set up to like hand that I really struggle you know if I like close my eyes and like kind of do my daily affirmations that things are going to go really well that the first mistake I make I break down and I panic um so a lot of times I'll say like okay what are the mistakes I'm going to make like what is going to be the hardest part and yeah my kind of like affirmations have changed from like you're great to being like no, like everyone out there is like better than you are. <laughs> but if you do A, B, and C really well, then you can like hang. You can do it too. Um, but I think it's kind of a backwards way, but it's worked really well for me. <laughs> kind of change, change my perspective on confidence for sure. That's awesome. I think it's really interesting that you say that because there's something that's slightly wrong with affirmations and 
it's the kind of simple word of saying, I am amazing or I can do anything. Because as soon as we do something that isn't amazing, we sort of like give ourselves the the opposite to our affirmation. And it actually knocks us off the other way. And I, I don't know if you've done much sort of work in manifestation, but it's, essentially it's the same thing when we're manifesting something. If we get the opposite of what we're manifesting, it kind of pulls us way back. So what you're, the way that you're doing it is actually not only smart, but actually interesting in the way that you're kind of setting yourself up for whatever's coming to you is going to be tough so that you're ready for, you know, essentially when it is really tough or if it's easier, then all good. Um, and so many people sort of think, oh, this is going to be really easy. I'm not going to have to work for it. It'll be totally fine. And then find that the struggles are so much harder. And so, yeah, it makes so much sense that you do that. And although it might sound completely backwards, to anyone who's listening, I can totally get where you're coming from. And it'll be interesting to see if anyone sort of picks it up and sort of says, you know what, maybe I'll try that too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I don't know, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective, you know, as, you know, an Australian, because I think in the U.S. it's really culturally tied to having to be positive, to smiling and showing up. And, you know, there's a lot of other countries in the world that aren't that connected. You know, I think like Germany is sort of a great example of, you know, if you show up smiling and waving, people aren't going to accept that as genuine, yeah. right? Like they want to see you be a little yeah. bit like more discreet and kind of like earn their friendship where I think in America, culturally, there's intense, intense pressure to be positive the whole time. And I think we over rely on this idea of confidence. Um, and Debbie Millman uh, has a great podcast about the difference between confidence and courage. And she sort of explains that we often like misuse these two words. And confidence is sort of the idea that you know the expected outcome and like the repeatability of that outcome, right? Like if I take my book and drop it, I'm confident that gravity will bring it to the ground. <laughs> yep. Um, but am I confident that tomorrow is going to be sunny or rainy or snowy? I can look at the weather report and there's some data there that you can make projections, but my confidence in that is lower. And so she asks us to think of courage as sort of the driving force because courage is about taking the action and it's less mm -hmm. tied to the outcome. Yeah. So true. How do you, how do you fit that into your day-to-day -day life? Yeah, I think as a skier, what I do is dangerous. There's a lot of risk involved into learning a new trick or to um, avalanches and that kind of danger. Mm. And so I ask myself, yeah, am I making a confident choice or am I making a courageous choice? And when I'm making, when I need to make a confident choice, I really look at my skill development. I look at how many hours of training have I put into this? How many times have I done it? Um, what is the technical aspect that I need to improve in, whether it's on snow or in the gym? And when I'm making a courageous choice, I look more, more at the emotional side. I'll say, like, why do I want to do this? Like, what is drawing me to taking this risk or stepping out of my comfort zone? And then, um, you know, evaluating if things, is, is the risk worth the consequences? Um, and then I think encourage, what are the ways I can, like, mitigate or reduce the risk so that regardless of the outcome even if I fail the consequences aren't so severe and in skiing I think powder makes a big difference right mm, yep. if I'm gonna try a new trick for the first time that's gonna take courage and I don't know the outcome um, I can do the development skill training on the water ramps and trampoline but at some point in time like you know you're gonna try something and fail but if I choose to do it in powder snow versus solid ice 
I'm mitigating the risk. I'm allowing myself to be courageous and fail and not have severe consequence. <laughs> yeah. I see um, when we're, when you talk about the differences, because obviously they, they go one and they go hand in hand, they go together. Um, but the difference that you'd mm. get is you might only do something if you feel confident in it that doesn't take any courage because you either know how to do it, you've done it before, maybe you had the courage to do it before, but maybe your courage is lacking now, or you've seen someone else do it and it's easier to have that confidence because you've already seen it done. Whereas courage will almost be in a different sense you have to have that courage if you want to take a step forward that you've never taken before. And you have to have that courage in order to set yourself up to know that you're going to have a challenge and you're going to have maybe a failure and it might not quite go to plan. And so, yeah, yeah they I like the way you kind of reframe that too. They for sure, especially when you're like as an athlete, it's very difficult to have one um, and not have the other if you want to execute, you know, something further, something new, something exciting, something worth risk-taking. Because if you've just got right. confidence, then you might not have the courage to step up. But if you've got the courage and you don't have the confidence, you're probably going to go and do something, but it might really hurt, you know? <laughs> I guess that's where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in the opposite sense too if all you ever have is courage and you have to rely on courage for everything it's going to be really hard and you're going to be scared the whole time yeah and that sometimes you have to listen to that fear and instead of asking yourself to be braver or you know take this risk asking yourself oh what skills do I need to develop where do I start where do I find something that I can work on and land, you know, 75% of the time sure. before I take this step to something I might only land 25% of the time. And sure. I think um, where I see that play out is for women a lot. So I coach trampoline here in Jackson for the skiers. And in my trampoline class, I have about 10 awesome young men and no young women in my class oh really until they reach a certain age like 15 16 um and then these women come and they want to be as capable as their male jumpers yeah, yeah. and so they get told just be confident be confident and I'm like no they've missed out on eight years right. <laughs> of acrobatic training totally. compared to these guys of course you're going to be less confident you might have the same amount of courage, but without like that same skill base, you're only relying on your courage rather than yeah. getting to just be confident that you have those skills. And so I see a lot of times people, you know, will say to women, like, you can hit that jump, just believe in yourself. Yeah. And I will say, you know, okay, what are the skills you need that you do believe in yourself? Yeah. And then to take that next step you're only relying you know a 25% courage instead of having to go 100% having no idea what the outcome will be yeah I love that that's such a smart way to talk to to especially like children and teenagers as well for them to actually understand what the feeling is coming from why they're feeling anxious or why they're feeling nervous you know being able to understand how they can mitigate that in their mind as well I think that's super cool I was just going to kind of frame shift that into like looking at how like privilege is important in like those conversations of like, if someone isn't given the same opportunities from the start, you know, it's easy to victim blame by saying like, you're just not mm -hmm. confident instead mm -hmm. of saying like, you were never given the opportunities to like equally develop these skills to have confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Big lesson, huge lesson. And so, you know, through, through going back a little bit into your, your injuries and your competing, did you have, what, did you learn anything um, with, to do with your mindset, um, learning around strategies that you can use to sort of get through the, 
the tough times and the challenges and maybe having to slow down a bit? Definitely. Um, I think what I've learned is that there's no just one strategy that works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like we have to build toolkits for, you know, all sorts of different skills, like the same for me is true of mindset. Like there are days where I have too much energy and I need to like relax and calm down. And there are days where I have no energy and I need to fire myself up. Um, and I think that like showing up and trying different things is like the only way I've learned kind of to deal with them when they arise. Cool. If that makes sense. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a good specific example. Do you have kind of a, a toolkit that you use or is there sort of like a go-to thing that you feel more comfortable with? Uh, there's, there's a bunch of different tools I think that I would use, um, that I speak very much on about in like my mini episodes and being able to use different strategies and, and different tasks essentially to do to either pick yourself up. Most of the time, um, I would find that people will struggle obviously when they don't have enough energy or they don't have enough motivation or they have that self-doubt and they have the you know the challenges that come up and they're wondering whether they're even doing the right thing and they're constantly constantly going to come up so having sort of a little backlog of different things that you can pull out um, different things to sort of you know up yourself and up that confidence and up that belief in yourself and just remember how awesome you are I think is is super important Um, and I just wondered whether your coaches in skiing or throughout that time had some ways to be able to help you or whether it was kind of let's just leave you to your own devices or I don't know maybe your parents or your family and your friends etc yeah I think I've learned more of those skill sets from family and friends Um, I found it really frustrating on the U.S. ski team we had a sports psychologist but I felt that she just put a lot of pressure on me to be positive. Um, And when I would ask more for those like toolkits or like strategies, I felt like there was just this expectation to like, you know, like puff my chest out and just be proud and confident. And um, so I think turning, yeah, to family and friends for that. um, My dad and sister both kind of struggle with depression. So I think I've learned a lot from them in sort of one that it's just like, okay, not to be happy all the time because I am kind of just like naturally pretty like positive and upbeat and have a lot of energy. And I think I like see the stigma of like what it means to not be happy, but it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily always like applied to like my personality type. And so I think like learning from them like when to admit that you're like not okay is really important and to like find people who can just like sit with you and like hold that emotion um and aren't necessarily always like solution based and kind of just can like sit and empathize and then you know when the time is right start to move forward and start to put the pieces back together and I think that it's exhausting to always try to be like really upbeat and I find that this kind of correlates into like how I schedule. Um, I really like the idea of having balance in my life, but I don't. I run around frantically for about like three weeks and my (laughs) days are booked from 6 a.m. until 11 p.m. because there are just so many things I want to do and people I want to hang out with and activities and things to learn. Um, But I know that at the end of three weeks, I'm going to crash and I will book out and plan out about two to three days for me to like be in bed not talk to anyone and recover because I don't necessarily want the rest of my weeks to incorporate that balanced time because I'm missing out on the things I care about so I feel like emotionally in that toolkit too of like recognizing that like I'm gonna have a really great period of time followed by times where I need to like build in emotional recovery and same in skiing like it's hard because it's very dependent on the weather so sometimes they'll just weather and you know you're gonna have to like push through 
a two-week stretch of skiing and getting up early every morning and training really hard, but then purposefully giving myself time off as well and knowing that you make a lot of gains in your time off as much as you do when you're out doing something as well. Yeah, that is something I have actually really struggled with. I think my partner is is very much... In fact, we're both very lucky to be very happy people. <laughs> I say lucky in the fact that we do a lot of work on being happy as well, which which helps. But it's far more natural for us to be happy and to be in that zone. One thing I do struggle with is weather, especially if I'm going skiing or I'm going into the mountains and the thick fog sets in. Yeah. And I, I, is like throughout my whole sort of mountain time, I really struggle with that because my one thing I want to do is to be able to go out and play in the snow, to be able to go and see the mountains, even just seeing the mountains, not even having to be there, but actually being able to see them makes me feel so alive. And I've noticed it a lot, especially after this winter and um, being in the mountains and obviously the mountains being closed and ski touring not being allowed and it was really tough, although there wasn't even that much snow, luckily, probably made it a little bit easier and it was sunny. But it was really interesting to think how the mind works and how you actually really have to concentrate on something else or put my energy elsewhere so that I don't have to constantly be thinking about, I wish I was in the mountains, I wish I was skiing or I wish I was touring. Uh, so it's yeah it's really interesting that you say that and such a journey and I think all these things are journeys as well I think when you mentioned about you know the difference between the courage and the difference between the confidence and a lot of that being ego self saying well I want to do that because I should be able to land that jump or you know the guys have done it so therefore I should be able to do it so I'm just going to go for it anywhere right anyway rather than having you know the backing or the practice behind you and how how much our minds can just really take over the way that that the way that things happen in our life but giving yourself so much grace I love that and I think it's so important and actually I'm English in case case you didn't get the accent um no that's fine and it's the same in England we are very much you know show up and be the husband or the wife or the mother or the daughter that you're meant to be and push on through you know like that that nothing matters like you're strong you can do it kind of thing and I honestly think that it might be a reason why we have this strange you know like a lot of people are falling into depression a lot of people not feeling like as though they're enough because we don't give enough grace to it's okay not to feel amazing today it's okay to have a bad day you don't have to be on top of your game like all the time it's in fact it's completely abnormal if you're on top of the game the whole time and that's really why I wanted to actually start this podcast in the first place was to show people that people aren't just amazing and they don't just fall into being an athlete or fall into being an entrepreneur you know there is there is some time that goes through to that and and everything in between you know and I think it's an amazing thing to be able to say to people especially when you're when you're coaching and when you're doing that to to be open to people that that's just the way that it is you know totally and I feel like there are times in which I feel so on top of my game, right? And all of my mental strategies work mm-hmm. and a problem arises and I have my toolkit. And then there are other times that it feels like no matter how big my toolkit is, I like can't find the right size wrench to like yeah. address my issue. Uh, yeah. And so I think your story of like the journey is really powerful because to me, yeah, there's obviously these peaks and valleys of different like emotions and like recognizing that when I'm in a valley that despite thinking I have the toolkit or the answer like giving myself like permission to like be like oh I don't and I don't have to necessarily learn from this I can just sit here because there's probably going to be something I'm going to learn but it doesn't have to always be about learning when I'm miserable I can just be miserable Um, but one thing I've started to try to do is name those negative emotions because I find that when I'm feeling unhappy, 
if I can kind of more narrow down my feeling of uncomfortableness, it helps me then put it in perspective, you know, say like, oh, Mm -hmm. am I feeling envious? Or am I feeling, you know, like self-pity? Or am I feeling like sadness and despair or guilt? And then figuring out what that negative emotion actually is rather than just being like, I feel bad. (laughs) Yeah. And, and you know what, that in itself is, is a really good stepping stone just so that you can really understand where that energy is coming from, you know? It's so, it's something that I think people just think, oh, I just don't feel good or I don't feel happy or I feel sad, but they don't actually know why. And actually understanding what, what your brain is telling you or maybe, you know, what the little devil on your shoulder is telling you is is something completely different to what you might even think it is. Totally. And I think that those negative emotions are so important to get to feel because they add so much meaning to life as well. You know, I think coronavirus and loss and sadness and isolation and loneliness, those are real emotions. Mm -hmm. And they give such validation to the other parts of our life too that I think it's like, oh, my friends are really meaningful to me because when I can't hug them, I feel loneliness. And I think that if we're always trying to hide those negative emotions or pack them away, it's harder to, like, appreciate what in our life is meaningful. You know, I think sadness and disappointment help teach us what we truly care about. You know, if you fail at something and you're totally okay with it, it's probably not that important to you. And so getting to sit with your sadness and getting to, I don't know, they guide us, I think, just as much as, like, joy and happiness. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. And I think it's it's super important as well to realize that often when we lose something or we have the the, the appearance of losing something, that we're actually gaining it elsewhere in our life, whether we are gaining it in a, in a friendship or in an, another person or in another way that we're actually doing life, is we are all encompassing of everything. So it's almost impossible for us to lose something without it turning up in a different place within us. Mm, that's beautiful. I really appreciate that. Mm. You're welcome. <laughs> Did you have like a mentor that has helped you along your journey to becoming the person that you are now or maybe even throughout your time um, competing? Definitely. I feel very lucky to have had a lot of great mentors. Um, I think that I'm pretty proactive in reaching out to people for help in developing skills Um, and I definitely like believe in the kind of like expression of like a smart man learns from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others and recognizing that a lot of what's been done has been done before by other people. And that by just asking questions and getting to learn, um, you can like grow in those experiences and not necessarily have to have some of the pitfalls for yourself. Um, and So I think one thing I've purposefully done is then proactive in asking for help because I think it's very intimidating to have the, you know, it feels like the mentor needs to reach out to you and that they're know so much and they're so cool and that they like wouldn't want to spend time, you know, with their like mentee per se, but kind of realizing that people want to help and that people are excited if you say hey I think you're great can I learn from you um and as long as it's authentically around learning I definitely see people reach out to kind of like members of this community looking to like get a sponsorship or you know an opportunity um but I find that if I reach out like asking to learn people are willing to do that um and even saying like hey can I buy you a cup of coffee and just chat we'll start to like develop those relationships And I think on the flip side, a lot of the people I've gotten to look up to have become friends. A lot of my friends are people that I really look up to. 
And I think that, you know, surrounding yourself with a good friend group and almost valuing them as much as you value the kind of people in power, the people you see as like leaders or mentors, um, gives you a, a really authentic place to learn of saying like, I really like this person. Why do I like them so much? And mm-hmm. What can I learn from them? Um, has been really special to me and having a diverse friend group, I think, um, in university, I played ultimate Frisbee and that, you know, co- cohort of friends has been so vital in kind of keeping me balanced because I think skiing is such a core identity part of me that I think of it directly as like my value is also connected to skiing and my ultimate friends know that skiing is important to me and want to support me in that and my endeavors but have no idea anything about skiing (laughs) and so you know I will say like I am sad because this happened and they're like cool I have no idea what that means but (laughs) how can I like care for you and on the flip side of saying like wow I did this amazing thing and they'll again be like cool I'm like happy for you but again like I don't really care and I have no idea what that means (laughs) so I think it's used to be a little bit more like even keeled um and gives me yeah an opportunity to talk to friends who are not necessarily so invested in the same topic that I am yeah yeah I totally get you and that is so awesome and I think such a good lesson for for anyone listening is you know what to find people that you want to surround yourself with whether it's mentors, whether it's just people that you look up to, that you love the energy of, that you love what they're, what they're doing and how they live life, is, yeah, just to reach out to them and become friends with them. I think even just connecting and even following people, you know, on social media that you find inspiring, that, you know, you find passionate about what they're doing, um, especially for people who maybe live, Uh, in rural areas or don't really have that much community around them I think that can be really tough but the people that you hang out with or the people that you follow or the people that you learn from are the ones that are going to you know show you and give you ideas of how you can live life and if we're hanging out with people that don't light us up that don't give us energy and that don't you know help us learn or drive us forward then maybe it's time for us to find a new set of friends. And I love that you go out and do that and that you want to go catch up with people just to get to know them and that you've got your other friends who are just really sweet friends who are there to support you and there to give you help when you need it. Um, And just to give you that balance, I think it's such a big learning lesson for for people who want to go somewhere is to find the people not only that have been there before but make friends and have friends in those places and amazing amazing lessons to share with the crew so thank you yeah and I think it's really hard I think like the idea of making friends sounds really easy (laughs) but it's like hard to necessarily like join a new group or like find those connections Um, and I was wondering if you like had any kind of like strategies you use in like developing those relationships. I think, you know what, not everyone is open into having new relationships. I, I, it's interesting that you say that when I moved to Canada, I lived in Revelstoke and Whistler for a year and I found it really difficult to make friends with people. And it was often as soon as I told someone that I was from England, that they would just sort of, that was kind of it. And I found it really strange because uh, living in sort of a tourist area for a few years, I knew that if if anyone would come in, then the one thing I would do is to try and make them feel at home, to try and invite them to something where they could hang out and so that they could, you know, meet new people. And I soon became aware that not everyone was like that and everyone was, or some people were very happy with their own set of friends didn't want to grow those sets of friends were very happy kind of in their box essentially and there's not really anything you can do about that apart from just keep talking to new people and keep you know finding new people that you love because maybe the person that you find super inspiring who is doing all this amazing stuff maybe in the background they're actually not the person that you think they are and so it's just a a matter of getting out there and and just being you and the people that love you will be attracted by you and your energy and you will find your tribe 
Yeah, I agree. I think that like the collaboration back is really important um, and hard to kind of evaluate. I've, I'm such a nerd as you know, but uh, <laughs> I've been keeping a journal of all of the times my friends fail on me <laughs> and the, um, the amount of time they give me as a heads up before it happens. Because there's people I absolutely, like, love and adore, but they'll bail on me, like, pretty often. And I've had to, like, reframe my friendship with them and be like, okay, like, I really value this person and I want to spend time with them. So I am going to, like, give them this open window, but I'm not going to give them the, like, really important ski mission or objective or hangout time that if they bail on, I'm, like, out of luck and I can't go do it right so I think like learning that like different friends show up for you in different ways yeah and like evaluating like is this person worth the amount of times they bail on me um and the answer to that can be like yes right I think none of these things are like finite either right I think there are times in which a friend has a bunch of free time and they're really dependable and they show up for you and they give you energy and then that same friend can have a really bad day and a really rough patch in their own life and they bail on you a bunch and you need to give them energy but I think it's hard for me to necessarily like evaluate because I am someone who like likes to give a lot that I often find I'll like give a lot and then get burnt out and realize that that friendship wasn't as strong as I thought it was and so it's funny for me to have like this objective measure of like how much I get back but it's interesting to be like oh wow this person has bailed on me you know seven out of 12 times we've tried to hang out you know, versus this other person has legit showed up every single time. Why do I see these relationships different, you know? Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes that just, that's just like your call to go and say to the friend who's not showing up and not obviously saying, okay, so you've bailed on me like seven out of 10 times, but just saying, hey, you know what? Like we're really good friends and I really value your friendship, but it seems that maybe you know, you don't value it as much as, as I do because, you know, we've organized quite a few things together and it seems that other stuff that keeps coming up that's more important for you. So I just wanted you to know that I'm kind of noticing that myself and it's not really making me feel like our friendship is valued here. I just wanted to let you know just so that you know how I feel. Because sometimes they've got no idea. Sometimes they don't even know that they've bailed on you seven times. And so sometimes it's for them, it's just becoming aware of that and going, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I did not realize. Of course, I 100% value your friendship, but it might just tick a few things in the head to go, oh my goodness, I really need to, I need to, I need to become a better friend. I need to be better than this. Mm, I love that open communication. I think it's so intimidating to say that, but is so valuable and transparent and gives a true opportunity on both sides to like express how you feel. That's, I'm going to, I'm going to copy those words down and uh, read them as a script the next time. <laughs> you know, I know that if someone, that if someone said that to me and I had been that friend, I would be like, Oh my goodness, I need to step things up. I'm so sorry. Like let's go for a weekend away together or something like let's I'll let, let me make this up to you kind of thing, you know? Sometimes people just yeah. really are unaware of the time, the energy and the things that are going on in their life that sometimes just someone needs to just tell them. It's all. Amazing. I love that. <laughs> all right, Han. So my last question that I want to ask you is what's one of the scariest things that you've ever done? Ooh, I have so many of them. <laughs> I feel like I love scaring myself. Um, so I'm going to try to think of a ski objective and then like a personal life objective. Um, I think one of the scariest things I've ever done was quit mogul skiing. Oh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. it was my passion, my love, something I was good at. And when I left mogul skiing, I still loved it and uh, still wanted, you know, to go to the Olympics. I have, I was the first alternate um, for the 2014 Sochi Olympics and lost a three-way tie break. So, so I, uh, 
and transitioned out of it in 2018, which was an Olympic year. So there was kind of this um, giving up that dream for like another dream. And I think I'm really good at putting my head down and working really hard and I'm less good at letting go and quitting something. So that was really, really scary to make that decision to like shifts paths, um, even though I still loved it. Yeah. And, I can imagine, man. I can uh, imagine it must be so tough. Yeah. And I think um, as a person, um, one of the scarier things I've been doing recently is uh, committing to, like, be in a more serious, like, romantic relationship. <laughs> um, I have always, like, prioritized skiing and all my other activities um, and making time and making room for those. And I think a lot in my personal life, I have not committed to, like, giving a significant other the amount of time that I give my other activities. Um, And I think, yeah, this year I have, like, a great partner, and he is really open to, like, good communication. Um, And we've been working a lot on trying to, like, develop a relationship that, like, fits for both of us. Um, rather than, like, looking kind of at, like, what society tells you a relationship should look like. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, and I think being, like, vulnerable and trying to, like, build something that I don't know what I want it to look like <laughs> um, has been really scary for me because there's also, like, another player invested, right? Like, yeah. there's someone else who I feel like I care for and don't want to hurt. Um, so that has been my new scary adventure of the year. <laughs> good scary adventure though lots of positives in that one <laughs> that'll be yeah. um it'll be uh, really interesting I look forward to hearing about how you sort of manage your your time and expectations with that and because you're obviously super duper busy always doing something new and always doing something exciting so yeah I can imagine that finding the time to put someone special in there can be a good little challenge Totally. I think at one point early in our relationship, he told me that trying to date me was like scheduling a one hour work meeting once a week. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, well, well, you're not wrong. (laughs) So my question is like, do you want the seven o'clock dinner slot or should I like fill it with someone else? (laughs) Oh man, that is hilarious. Uh, Which is great. But then, you know, being able to communicate from there and, you know, I think even just being like comfortable sitting at your kitchen table and like each independently doing work is like a really big, like scary stepping stone in a relationship. You know, it's like, how do you spend time together without necessarily having to like give up five hours of your day to like really entertain each other for the whole time? Yeah. Anyway, so it's been a a good learning experience, but I think that's one of my favorite things anyone has ever said to me because it's so true. (laughs) That's hilarious. It totally makes sense as well. I can imagine it. Sounds like a bit of a legend though. You might want to stick, keep him around. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, honey. Well, thank you so much for jumping on with us. Um, Super fun conversation. And thanks for sharing all your tips and tricks for everyone. I hope that, you know, Uh, If anyone needs your help or feels like you might be able to inspire them, that they feel that they can reach out to you, why don't you let them know where they can find you on social media um, or online? Of course. Yeah. Instagram is probably the best way to reach out to me. And um, my handle is my first and last name. So at Sophia Schwartz. And of course, um, feel free to like reach out with questions. Um, I am pretty bad at replying immediately. I try not to be on social a ton. Um, but if you offer to like have a phone call or chat and like on Skype or something like that, I'm much more willing to have a, a real conversation than reply to, to text messages. So that's my, my key to getting in touch with me. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much Flora. I've really enjoyed it and, um, appreciate kind of like creating this space to have these conversations Um, I know it's a lot of work on your end as well so thanks for making it happen it's super fun and thank you so much for having us and I will put the link to your Instagram in um, the show notes as well so if anyone wants to say hello or thank you then you can find it in the show notes Um, thank you so much hun thanks for jumping on and guys don't forget if you want the free guide to building courage and confidence and belief 
then don't hesitate to contact myself or join our free Facebook community and you can get it in there that's also in the show notes. Um, Thanks again, honey. Lovely to chat to you and I'll speak to you very soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and head on over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listener and give us a five-star review. Don't forget to join our free Facebook community called She's Unshakable, where we get to share our tips and tricks and experiences with building courage, resilience, and belief in ourselves. I look forward to meeting you in there.